Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guests are the wonderful Chelsea Luger and Thosh Collins, founders of Well for Culture and authors of The Seven Circles, Indigenous Teachings for Living Well. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. We have offered a model, the seven circles, that helps people to understand that it's not just food and fitness, which so many wellness practitioners purport. It's not just diet and exercise. It's not just the way that you look on the outside or the $90 yoga pants that you can afford or the fancy studio class or the 25 ingredient smoothie that costs $25. You know, those are unfortunately the images that we have now when it comes to wellness. And that's why so many people continue to feel excluded and uninterested in wellness. It seems so superficial. And so what I hope is that we have incorporated all these other elements to show people that not only can they be a person who participates or who practices wellness, but they are already. We're we're all on this journey to some degree already. So says Chelsea Luger, who with her husband Thosh Collins makes up a wellness team. They are authors, teachers, and the founders of the Indigenous Wellness Initiative, Well for Culture. Launched in 2013, Well for Culture was established to reclaim ancient Native wellness philosophies and practices to promote the well-being of the physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional self. From their exploration and practice, the two have developed a holistic model for modern living, which they share with us in their first book, The Seven Circles, Indigenous Teachings for Living Well. According to Luger and Collins, these seven circles, food, movement, sleep, community, sacred space, ceremony, and connection to land, are interconnected, working together to keep our lives in balance. In our conversation, we begin to explore these many aspects of health as Luger and Collins explain how their teachings can be adapted to every life and how to do so while maintaining respect and reverence for the indigenous origins of the wisdom and practices they share. We discuss their work to reframe wellness, how to integrate spirituality into movement through intention, and the power of the hollow bone mentality. 
Healing and wellness is not just a journey of one, they tell us, but rather a journey of family and community. When we take the important steps to heal ourselves, we contribute to the health of all. I was very moved by this conversation, which we'll turn to now. So just a little intro too for us. My name is Thosh and I'm one of the co-founders of mine and Chelsea's little initiative that we call Well for Culture, which we started. We started kind of creating it in 2013, 2014. Later on, we, after traveling a native country and doing trainings, we started to kind of narrow it down and, 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 and see all the different aspects that play a role in our health and wellness that was rooted in a lot of ancestral indigenous life ways. And we came down to seven circles. And so that's that's a little bit you know, of that. And I'm originally from the Salt River Pima Maricopa community. It's a small reservation right outside of the city of Scottsdale in Arizona, near the Phoenix metropolitan area. And I also work with the Native Wellness Institute. I've been on the board there for about 12 years. And together, yeah, we do our work together. Do you want to intro yourself too? Sure. Yeah, I'm Chelsea and I'm also the co-founder of Welfare Culture and the co-author of The Seven Circles, Indigenous Teachings for Living Well, which is our forthcoming book. And we are two Indigenous people who are passionate about health and wellness. And we formulated our friendship based on our shared interest in wellness and in revitalizing health and wellness for our communities. From there, we became colleagues. And from there, we decided to get married. (laughs) So, you know, we're really passionate about this, this work that we do. And yeah, so the seven circles, the seven circles are food, (laughs) movement, sleep, community, sacred space, ceremony and connection to land. So that's so why there has to be two of us because I always forget one or two of them at the end. <laughs> Which is funny as long as we've been doing it. And you know, we we just put our minds together and we thought, you know, what were the aspects in our pre-colonial indigenous life ways that contributed to our people to be living in thriving health? Health as in spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional health. And when we display the seven circles in a visual map. We see them in a circle and at the center, we see that spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional. Also at that, there's one person at the center there. And when we are practicing these seven life ways right here, we are affected spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally as as one single person. If we reach our arms outward, there's another circle around us philosophically, spiritually. And those are all the people that we love that they sit into that circle we're holding hands with them and they have their people that are holding hands with them. So that also illustrates the teaching that, that healing and wellness is not just a, a, a journey of one, but a journey of family and community in the greater world. So we believe that when I am healing, family experiences that healing. When families are experiencing those healing, communities are experiencing those healings and able to function well in a political, cultural, social, a ceremonial sense. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that you guys have wellness and obviously well for in the title of the book and in your work, because so much of it, understandably, of the book is a little bit a, a take back, right, of this concept that's become this trillion, $4 trillion 
Mm -hmm. industry, right? And you talk about it, you know, there's some really stunning moments in the book where you talk about, I think it's in the conversation where where you're talking about parenting and, and elders. And you write, just as we view children as sacred and beautiful, we view elders as sacred and beautiful too. Our elders have given us so much throughout our lives. It is our honor to take care of them and to remain close to them to the end of their lives. Perhaps one of the most striking shortcomings of Western wellness culture is that it prioritizes and glorifies youth while painting a picture of old age as being desolate and bleak. And you write about the wellness industry throughout in a pretty stunning way, which I think we'd all recognize how it's become. The instinct is beautiful, but it's become commoditized, commercialized, and engineered for some sort of meeting some exterior idea, right, of like what it is to participate, whereas you guys are centering it in community and in a different, more of an idea of wholeness. But how do you guys think about that as like being part of this wellness industry? I don't even know what you would call it. Like, how do you, how would you, how would you explain it? And I understand it as a shortcut, right? People understand that word and it's a mainstream cultural Mm -hmm. idea, but if you could completely reframe it, would you? Well, I think in a way we have done so because we have offered a model, the seven circles that helps people to understand that it's not just food and fitness, which Mm -hmm. so many wellness practitioners purport. It's not just diet and exercise. It's not just the way that you look on the outside or the $90 yoga pants that you can afford or the fancy studio class or the 25 ingredient smoothie that costs $25. (laughs) You know, those are unfortunately the images that we have now when it comes to wellness. And that's why so many people continue to feel excluded and uninterested Mm -hmm. in wellness. It seems so superficial. And so what I hope is that we have incorporated all these other elements to show people that not only can they be a person who participates or who practices wellness, but they are already. We're we're all on this journey to some degree already. And, you know, it's interesting. Just yesterday, I was visiting with Dasha's mom. And she goes, I, I don't do that stuff myself. And I'd really like to, you know, and she's talking about being healthy. She's like, oh, I know I'm not really walking the walk either. I said, but Joe, I said, but you are. It's not just about being on the perfect diet or going to the gym every day. I said, look at the way that you care for your home. Look at the way that you care for your family. Those are huge pieces of wellness that you are very, very much a practitioner of and a leader of. And she was like, okay. <laughs> like, I think she was, you know, happy to hear that. And I I hope that she was. And, and that's exactly what we hope to help people connect with is mm-hmm. those areas of wellness. And I hope that people recognize that they are in some way a leader or a person who exemplifies wellness in some aspect of their life. I truly believe that everybody has that, 
or that they have it inside of them. And then I also believe that even for those areas of health that folks haven't yet connected to, that they will find a way that works for them. And so certainly we don't expect an elder to out of nowhere decide that, you know, to be a yoga practitioner or to feel comfortable going to a yoga studio or something like that. But there are types of movement that everybody can participate in, even if it's like, you know, mindful breathing exercises and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I just think it, wellness, first of all, is so much more than what the industry tends to promote. And there are also so many other ways to connect to the common areas of health, which are food and fitness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to kind of give a little bit more context too for listeners that may not be familiar with native country, but within native country, there has been a movement dating back even to the 60s about reclamation of indigenous lifeways and culture and heritage identity. And the theme has largely been around decolonization, decolonization of the mind and of, of, of tribal governance structures and to you know revitalize what was taken away from us through the colonial process. And so the movement for for native healing and wellness has been happening for a long time. I used to attend a lot of the gatherings of the board that I sit on, the Native Wellness Institute. I used to attend a lot of their healing and wellness gatherings when I was like 14 and I'm like 40 now. So they've been using that term too. I've always, you know, heard that term native wellness for a long time. But as you know, in the recent years in dominant culture, mainstream culture, wellness has has really become something that's more in the spotlight. So for, for me, coming from you know my upbringing, I see wellness different than what we kind what we are seeing in the in the in, in the mainstream culture and, and Chelsea as well. And so I think that our book is also a way to try to show that perspective to to dominant culture that there's there's some other aspects and elements that we as Native people would like to share with dominant culture that are very appropriate that are not along the lines of appropriating our culture, but to kind of give another perspective that's actually rooted in our original pre-colonial life ways. Yeah. So I'd like to also just offer that. No. And I want to talk about cultural appropriation. We'll sort of put that in a parking lot for a minute and go into that and, and some of the spiritual theft that's happened and sort of going to what you were saying, Thosh, this idea, which I feel like is something that's so significant in the American consciousness as we grapple with systemic racism, and then you get to this idea of mass genocide, right? The foundation of this country, which most people can't even fathom, right? Like this house that I own, who's to say that I own that? Like just the extreme reality. I was reading the dawn of everything too, that with the genocide, with smallpox, with the decimation of indigenous population, which was what I think you guys say, somewhere between 20 and 100 million that went down to 200,000 by 1900s, that there was actually a, um, this book was written by an anthropologist and archaeologist, there was a mini ice age experienced on Native America because of the extreme drop in population, which was like just a stunning idea when you think about the complete shift. Do you guys feel like people are starting to actually grapple with this and process it? And obviously, like there's the trauma that Indigenous people carry. It's a collective trauma in some ways. Do you feel like it's starting to, people are starting to face it? 
Yes, absolutely. I think that in Indian country, when we really started to reclaim our pride in our culture and to reteach and reexamine and revitalize so many of our cultural teachings and our and our true history, that started in the 1960s and 70s with the Red Power Movement, and it has continued ever since. And it's a totally different situation with the youth of today versus 30 years ago, where today kids are finally benefiting from all of this intergenerational reclamation and healing that has taken place within our communities, where there are youth today who are growing up able to be proud of who they are from the day they're born. And that is something that we absolutely do not take for granted because even in my generation and Thosh's generation, we experienced very, a lot less acknowledgement of our history mm-hmm. and a lot less appreciation from dominant culture of our culture and of who we are. It was a lot of racism And it's not to say that racism is gone or that people aren't experiencing that anymore. I think that in certain circles, though, folks are starting to become educated. And then we also look to the Black Lives Matter movement that I think really catapulted and was a catalyst for mainstream society's recognition of finally learning the truth about this country's history finally learning the importance of anti-racism and that it's not just marginalized groups who have to be a part of this conversation. It's relevant to everybody. And so I think that in the last couple of years, we have seen even more of an interest from mainstream society in learning about these topics. But this is just the beginning. Of course, we have so far to go. Yeah. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking. And it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. 
If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-T-T. And then you guys mentioned too that there's sort of the just how Native people are not a monolith. And now there's this move to like treat every Native person like a mystic and just trying to get people to understand sort of the nuance while venerating and understanding the culture, which has been obviously maligned, traumatized, but so misunderstood, right? Culturally, this idea that Oh, Native people weren't using the land and, you know, all these incredibly insidious and harmful ideas that we're starting, to, particularly in the context of climate change, we were talking about before we started recording. Now it's like, oh, we should, like, indigenous, an under, understanding of the planet is essential if we're going to survive, which seems late, right? But maybe, maybe hopeful, maybe there's something in that. Mm-hmm. Let's yeah. start with with movement because sort of as you as you were talking about in the context of elders and this idea that we're all in the circle, right? There's so, these things might be tiny circles or they might be over indexing in our lives, but the presence of these seven circles that you guys outline and the way that you recontextualize them I think is very powerful. For example, instead of fitness and thosh, the way that you wrote about running terrible runner but it made me I was like this can you talk a little bit about that like the sacred nature of running and Mm -hmm. how to think about that yeah you know I think that you know for for anyone that's interested you know in the age-old tradition of running that you can think about first off I think everything starts in the mind you know what's the purpose of of your running what is the purpose of your running and where do you plan to go with your running I think that there's many different reasons why people will run. People will will run to get into a tunnel to help heal from any sort of stress, you know what I mean? Anxiety. And some people will run for cardiovascular health. And some people will 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 run to challenge themselves to improve their overall mental, emotional, physical, spiritual grit. You know, people will challenge themselves and run distances from all across you know, the culture and some people will run from one place to another simply as a means of transportation. Right. So I think that we can always start with the mind and ask ourselves too, what is my purpose for running today? And what do I hope to get out of this? And I think that it, if people are running for any sorts of, of reasons having to do with their spiritual health or to improve their overall uh, understanding of the spiritual world and how they're connected to it, they can they can first see their body as sort of a gift. The body has been given to us. Obviously, if they're running, then that means they have they have legs, and that we can we can view the body as something to give thanks for what health that we have, but not recognizing what health we do not have. But if we recognize the health we have, we recognize our heart, our heart, our organs, you know, brain, and recognize that this unit that we are living in right here, our spirit is living in right here is something to give thanks for. And to run would probably be to a way to uh, celebrate your, your physical wellness, to celebrate your health, to celebrate what you have here. 
and to think about those things as you run. And that may improve somebody's overall feeling of connectedness to a greater, higher source of energy that, you know, is involved in everything. So I always encourage people to, to think about those sorts of things if, if they are, you know, wanting to run for their, their spiritual health. And those are sorts of along the lines of things that knowledge keepers in our communities have told us when we were younger, our runs were for certain causes, run to acknowledge sobriety in communities, running to acknowledge a certain cause, you know, in our communities. That's what a lot of our runs were for. They were never for, you know, here's a 5K, you know, marathon or something. We do have, we do have those, you know, pre-colonial times. They did have races that were, you know, several miles long. They had races. And even then, though, there were, there were certain spiritual causes attached to it. So I always encourage people to, to, to know that you can run for, of course, improving, you know, body composition, cardiovascular health and such. But there's, there's, there's more components to it. And there's that, that spiritual sense of the body is something to give thanks for. And when you are doing that, you're basically in ceremony. I love that. And I think, Chelsea, you talked about sort of the sacred, how we think of, we think of certain things as sacred, but that it's all movement in some way is, mm-hmm. I don't think you call it a dance, but like the equivalent sort of thinking about the way that you move mm-hmm. throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Can be yeah, beautiful. I think I think that when folks, as soon as you realize the practicality of spirituality, it becomes much easier to incorporate spirituality in your life. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there has been this sort of un- unusual new agey sect of the wellness industry that's very performative with spirituality. And that's very, I would say, woo-woo. And unfortunately, that type of stuff impacts our reputation as Indigenous peoples. So we're already dealing with a very long history of what I would call religious or spiritual discrimination. And the way that the wellness industry misappropriates our culture doesn't help us at all. But what we hope to do is to help folks connect to spirituality in a way that is authentic for them. And that is through movement. I think that once people begin to place a purpose for their movement that is outside of the realm of competition or body image, not saying that competition is wrong, but I'm just saying there should also be this aspect of I'm doing this for my mental health. I'm doing this for preventative health care. I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing this so that I can be strong in the service of others. When folks begin, that's that's all it is. That's spirituality in our integrated in our movement practices, placing an intention. And so that is when I think many of us can truly begin to connect to movement in a way that feels like a relationship as opposed to it feeling like something that we are forced to do. And that's also a way that we can begin to truly connect to the an authentic spiritual feeling as opposed to something that feels very performative. And Tell me more about that sort of, can you, are there examples of, of where you, you feel like that's, you see that and it causes a shiver down your spine? Oh yeah. There's a very popular wellness festival that takes place 
they kind of move it around to different cities, but one of the big ones is in Sedona. And it's literally like hundreds of non-native people getting together and they're putting on face paint and feathers and they were instructed to mimic the Maori haka, but to create their own version of it, which as we know is totally inappropriate to just mock a ceremony. And that's part of their wellness festival. And they dress up in these costumes and they sort of bastardize indigenous regalia and face paint and they just play with it. Like it's like, it's a joke, you know, or we've seen, I'm literally, I'm not kidding. We've seen things like, you know, naked yogis, white women yogis in Hawaii with hand drums that come from our culture. And so there's just like all these elements that is this mishmash and it's this misappropriation of so many different things. And so, so of course, you know, the majority of folks, when they see that interpretation and that bastardization of indigenous spirituality, that does impact their beliefs on what spirituality is or on Mm -hmm what we as indigenous people practice, which is very, not that. Mm -hmm. One thing that you'll notice about Thosh and my social media presence is you don't see us performing ceremonies. You don't see us performing our, you know, our smudging or bringing the cameras to our community gatherings that are private and things like that. I mean, these are things that we participate in on a daily and weekly basis, and you don't see any of it on our social media pages. Whereas you'll see these non-native practitioners that call themselves medicine people in their bio and they're charging a hundred dollars for some kind of a spiritual session or a ceremony or whatever so that's the difference and that's what we really hope that folks begin to realize is that please you know no longer associate native people with those well it's interesting too because throughout the book you i feel like are appropriately really guarded about the intricacies of events that you allude to or write about. So you sort of underline the sacred components without actually sharing invasive details. But it's growing up, so I'm from Missoula, Montana, Salish Kootenai country and Mm -hmm. adjacent to the Flathead Reservation. And so I would always, I mean, always go to the annual powwow or 4th of July. And like, that's where I did most of my shopping and loved, I mean, like loved powwow, watching powwow. And so it's interesting too, because I feel like as you guys write, particularly going all the way back to 1492, there was a willingness to exchange and you guys will allow people to go to powwows, right? Like they're open to the public. And so almost in that generosity I think people think that they understand. They might only be seeing the tip of the iceberg, but they think that they understand an mm. entire culture, right? Or probably becomes, mm. I don't know. It's interesting because in some ways it's like amazing that you let people, mm-hmm. what, is, and can you talk about how, because I saw Chelsea, you were dancing the jingle and like talking about your girls learning how to dance. And is that is it just this, and it's multi-tribal, right? Like people are coming from all across the region typically to get together and there's competitions sometimes or it's just community dancing. But mm-hmm. is that is that more of a community event or is that a sacred event or both? And are you at a point where you're like, actually, 
powwow should be private? No, I think that, you know, powwows are an intertribal event that have that are actually relatively recent in terms of the, you know, history of Indigenous people. They are typically open to the public and folks are welcome to to watch powwow and to learn about our culture through that lens. And they're also competitive, actually, a lot of times. Not all powwows are competitive, but many of them are, where dancers have a chance to to compete and to win money as, you know, as their earnings and, and the drum groups are get a chance to compete as well. And so I love that folks can get an understanding of there's this level of skill and athleticism that is required mm-hmm. for powwow. And, you know, there are champion dancers out there that are just incredible athletes and artists. And it's a really cool piece of our culture that I think is mm-hmm. great that it's it is open to the public yeah. now of course you know there's an expectation that anybody who attends a powwow native or not mm-hmm. sort of is respectful mm-hmm. and you know even as native people we don't go around asking invasive questions about people's regalia or tugging at their braids or you know jumping in the circle and dancing if we're not a, a dancer and that kind of thing and or, or you know we don't you know, there's certain sort of modes of respect, just as a person would follow up a, a protocol when they attend a tennis match. If people go to, <laughs> right, if people go to powwows.com, there's great articles there about powwow etiquette, especially it's a great resource for non-native people. So I encourage people to attend those. And that's a respectful way to learn about our culture and there are times too where whoever's hosting the powwow will allow all people to come out and dance, you know, and and, and, <laughs> and so that there's those there's those times people get those opportunities to partake in our culture at the discretion of our people. But yeah, just to kind of also one thing you had mentioned earlier about powwow, I said you know is it sometimes it's spiritual or sometimes it's ceremonial or sometimes it's not, and and with every every aspect or everything that we do in a lot of our culture, there's the spirituality of things is it's always there. It's it's mm-hmm. seamlessly sort of overarching everything that we do. It's it's just part of everything inherently, right? So there's always that there's always those moments where where things are are the spiritual spirituality of everything is acknowledged in the opening of any sort of event. Words will be said, things will be recited, acknowledging all the elements in our life that give that give life, such as our the air, the mother earth we walk upon, the food we mm-hmm. eat, the water we drink, you know, the 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 ancestral people that walked here before us. And and we do that with like a lot of different gatherings. And so there's always the spirituality component there. But see, one thing too in our ceremonies is that we even laugh during them as well as we cry. There's there's times where where we have our native people love to joke. And you know, we're kind of looked at as the stoic, you know, people, they have the romanticized version of of us as, as stoic and and these people that are 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 walking in spirituality mm-hmm. in the romanticized sense every day. But much of our ceremony when people are getting ready, we're laughing, we're joking, we're poking fun at each other. And our humor on native people is pretty harsh sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next moment we're circling up and acknowledging all elements that give life. So there's always the spirituality that's mm-hmm. acknowledged in all, all that we do. Yeah. And I think, you know, to sort of get to the root of your question, where does cultural appropriation come from? And I think it's that in Western culture and religion, there's always been this aspect of you want to recruit other people and to mm-hmm. bring people into what you believe because you believe that, and I'm not saying you, I'm just saying in general, like, you know, if I'm 
a Catholic, I, I'm, it's my responsibility to believe that Catholicism is the best way and that I should bring people on other people, recruit people into that. If I have the chance, like, you know, when I was a kid growing up on, on the standing rock reservation, every single summer, there'd be busloads of missionary kids coming in and like lingering around our town all summer, trying to get the rest of us to join their religion. So that's, I think, been the way of Western culture. And that's why there was this massive effort to convert Mm -hmm. Native people into Western religions and Western lifestyles. Now, this concept that everybody has to believe what I believe was never Mm -hmm. present, or there would be some higher punishment, right? That was never present in Indigenous communities. There was always this respect of your beliefs are your beliefs and you know mm-hmm. go ahead with that that's mm-hmm. great like you know nobody's going to hell there's no concept of hell mm-hmm. we right. can believe different things and we can all respect each other it has always been the way and then i think because the reason that we have to now be guarded of our culture and the reason that we have to be protective over it is because when it is appropriated we face consequences as I said, people take us less seriously. They don't see us as fully formed human beings, just like you or I, who are worried about what our kids are going to eat for dinner or who we're going to vote for in the next election and that kind of stuff. And, you know, how am I going to, you know, you know, get all my emails answered today? Like, people are unable to see us that way because humanity is muddied by these stereotypes and these, these ridiculous notions mm-hmm. of of our humanity. So I think that's why we now have to be guarded and we have to be protective and careful over only talking about certain ceremonial things in in where it's safe. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights, I have the opposite problem, where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn. And I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me?, It's a bed-cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The ChiliPad bed-cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature, from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? A cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally. Visit www.sleep.me thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code THREAD. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. 
S-L-E-E-P dot me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. It's really beautiful you write about sort of the there's no there's no single story there's no religion right it is a, a spirituality or sacredness that's baked into life and the planet and your relationship with the earth and that you don't like you reject the word nature which is a problematic definition because according to you know the oxford english dictionary i think it has na- it has humans as distinct from nature right sort of the beginning of our the Western problematic idea of nature as something to dominate and exploit and the fact that within indigenous culture, there's no church, there's no place where you have to go, there's no single, there's no single, like there's, it's not a single deity, right? Like there's no, like this, it's not the same, there's creator, I don't, I don't want to, I don't know, so please correct me, but this idea that it is essential it is in everything also why i think that the the concept of the book is so meaningful because it's like every your space your how you wake up in the morning the where you procure your food not about perfection in any of those spheres but this idea that everything is sacred and you don't go somewhere to do that you do it mm-hmm. <laughs> all day yeah. is there a single deity like is there or it's just creator or it depends? I think uh, many of us use the term, well, first of all, most people talk about God or, you know, the spiritual world in their indigenous languages. And I think there's so many different interesting ways of doing that, many of which I don't even understand because, you know, there's so many different nations and they all have their own ways of talking about things. But yeah, I think we, a lot of times we'll use the word creator and that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I don't think it's ever been a single deity type of thing, but it's more of no anthropomorphized. Yeah. Yeah. It's more of a presence that's everywhere. It's more of a recognition that there's always something, uh, something higher, Mm -hmm. like wherever we go. And I always like to share my interpretation too, is that, that there's that higher source that, is responsible for all of creation. And, you know, I share with people a lot of times, like even the bioelectricity that is in our brains, in our hearts, it's, it's connected to, you know, the, the sun rays It's connected to, you know, the microorganisms that live in the, the soil. There's everything in, in us at a cellular level is circular and, and even moves, you know, in cycles the earth, the seasons, everything at a cellular level in the body. And there's something that's that connects all of us. And I think that, you know, maybe in time, science and technology will even be able to 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 measure that and to be able to find that what's that source. But I believe it's present. It's not something that is mysterious. It's present. You know what I mean? And and yeah. that's where we as native people all of our understanding of the spiritual sense is practical. There's no difference between spirituality and practicality. And we don't have concepts of like something being mysterious. The only really mystery that I think a lot of native people kind of carry across our different nations is this, is the understanding that we don't truly know how we, we, we have been created. We truly don't know, I guess the immensity of the power that created everything. And we're humbled by that. And we, we admit that we don't understand that and we're, we're humble in that sense and that we don't try to understand it and try to have the answers and to, you know, be the end all be all 
a, a source of information about about all creation of life. Can you guys talk a little bit? This was so I thought I think this is such a beautiful idea, Fool's Crow and the theory of hollowbone. And you talk about it at the end of the book too, sort of your att- trying to be hollow bones. But it's so it's stunning. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So Fu's Crow was a medicine man who lived from the 1800s all the way until the 1980s, a Lakota spiritual person. And he teaches in in his biography and he taught to many Native people as a, as a spiritual leader about this concept of being a hollow bone. And he would say that we're all these hollow bones. He just uses that as a visual tool for us to recognize that there's this space within us that can be filled by anything. Mm -hmm. And it's whatever we, however we choose to live our life on a daily basis, that that space is going to be filled with a certain type of energy or a certain type of force that we can then pass on to others. And however we end up filling our, our bone is how we live our life and how we impact those around us. And so he would say, anybody can live the life I live who has, you know, done the things that I do. So he puts the effort into, you know, acting in such a way that allows him to help others. So we can all do that. We can all fill our, Mm -hmm. this hollow space within us in a way that allows us to share our abundance. Mm. It's so beautiful. I have been on a kick sort of like exploring that idea of kenosis, that idea of like self-emptying and mm-hmm. in the, I'm not a religious person, I but I'm interested, I'm very spiritual and I'm interested in sort of how everyone in many ways is saying the same thing, but in the wisdom, in the Christianity wisdom tradition, they talk about like Jesus being someone who was just, all he was talking about was kenosis, self-emptying. And this idea of like, the more you let go, the more sort of spirit can come through you. Like there's Mm -hmm. no, it's sort of getting past that egoic binary structure of Mm -hmm. I'm Elise and this is what I believe. And how Mm -hmm. do you sort of, it's similar to that. I loved that hollow bone idea Mm -hmm. of like, how do you be really become just a vessel where things move through you without so much attachment? And thank you for sharing that too, because we love to hear about the ways that other cultures can relate or connect or the other, the ways that other cultural tools and teachings actually align with indigenous teachings in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. When I was growing up in my communities, like spiritual leaders would talk about very similar concepts. They'd talk about when you were, when you were conducting a healing, a spiritual healing session for somebody that it's not you that's doing it it's it's the great creator that comes through you that spirit that that spiritual higher spiritual power is that's working through you and and you should never think that it's you because then then mm. you would then you would lose the uh, true and whole understanding that you are just another human being that you are not more powerful than any other human being but you can open up your consciousness to a higher source to work through you and I believe that our, our model that we set out to seven circles is a good way for people to allow themselves to become, to raise their consciousness and, and, and allow themselves to be connected to all sorts of, all sorts of, of creation and life and to see themselves as a part of this, this, this grand interconnected network of, of living beings to see themselves as a part of that and believe that 
when we when we are having good relations in each of those seven circles, then we are we are improving our spiritual, physical, mental, emotional well-being, and and that's mm. one of the symptoms of that of improving that it is raising the consciousness and 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 helps one to receive a a better and more whole, robust worldview on how they can help with, with mm. themselves, the family, and community there. So, I believe it's a way to achieve that and, and to again to be that you know hollow bone or to move themselves out of the way in order for a higher source to work through. Yeah. And thinking about this too, and going back to what you were saying, Chelsea, about proselytization as well, and trying to keep things sacred. Because one of the things watching sort of the guruification happen too, where it was supposed to sort of be an antidote to that, to exterior authority, but then watching people emerge out of sort of the wellness complex who are professing, right, to have answer. You know, I, I I agree with you completely, Thosh. Like, you, people, we're channels. We're all capable of that. And it requires sort of that hollow bone mentality. I don't know what this is. I'm just, like, moving this through. It's not mine to own. It's not based in dominance or superiority. Yeah. And so, but you see people sort of assuming this, like, I have the answers. Yeah. And I have the yeah. answers for you. And so I very much understand why mm-hmm. the most sacred parts of culture need to be protected from that, also that sort of appropriation. Or like, mm-hmm. as you said, people calling themselves medicine men or shaman or things where it's like, well, that's actually not how that, like shamans are, and I am not an expert, but it's like, that is an ancestral lineage that is mm-hmm. a very specific cultural idea from a particular part of the continent. And it's not something that you can just... Claim. 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 Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So absolutely. Yeah. And you'll never find a medicine man on Instagram. I'll tell you that much right now. (laughs) Um, Or if they have Instagram, they're not posting about being a medicine person or a medicine woman either for that matter. Right. But you know, one of the, the, those other aspects of the modern wellness industry that we see all the time is this competition of knowledge and for example there's youtube videos every single day where their whole thing is just breaking down why this other wellness person was wrong and why their diet doesn't actually work or why their you know mode of fitness is not actually as effective as they say it is and you know there's this whole thing of all these different experts and then they get thousands of views when they critique each other and break each other down and criticize each other. We watch that stuff sometimes just because it's fun. I mean, we actually <laughs> watch and participate and read a lot of these, you know, people who are purporting that they are the end all be all answer just because we like to see what's out there. And we encourage everybody to, yeah. you know, read everybody, but with a grain of salt. Well, and exercising discernment. Yeah. Yes, with a level of discernment and with, you know, a level of critical thinking and including ourselves and which is something else I'm sure you've noticed we wrote about in the book a number of times so we remind people, please, you know, take from this what works for you. Take from this what you connect with and don't feel like you have to live exactly as we live. Don't feel like you have to think about all of these things in the exact way that we think about it. But what we do hope is this there's something here that you can connect with in a way that helps you in a way that serves you. So I think that that's something else that we've really tried to to do differently from a lot of the 
gurus that we've seen yeah. and we've had uncomfortable moments in the past where people have called us a guru of indigenous health or something and we go no 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 like please don't ever use that term like, we're not gurus or expert, of anything expert yeah experts not- tough too right yeah. it's a very it's a very human tendency to want to look to other people for yeah. answers rather than learning how to live it I think is what you guys are and and yes I loved throughout it was reassuring sort of within food and food ways talking about where you guys are and where you'd like to be and the fact that of course you shop at grocery stores and your kids eat chips yes and I eat pizza God forbid (laughs) I know I let my son buy some flaming hot Cheetos at the at the hardware store this weekend I was like yeah one one yeah I don't know that it's food, but (laughs) you can't win them all. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started. So it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets, they also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. Going into food, because I think this is, and, and being a Montanan, and this isn't the first time that I've spoken about this, but Thosh, I think you in particular are writing about hunting, and I I feel very defensive of hunting, even though I don't hunt because I don't, I'm not brave enough. I'm not tough enough to look my food in the eyes. And it's easier for me like it is for all Western people to buy it at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. But I loved how you wrote about hunting and this the essential paradox of to survive other things, plants, animals, 
have to die like is this paradox of the circle of life and I thought it's so it's so beautiful I think hunting is so honorable and can you talk a little bit about your relationship to that yeah and I and I'm glad that that's what you got out of it and I think that that's what a lot of people miss who haven't been raised in hunting or haven't been raised in a culture where hunting has been something that we've been doing even from a ceremonial way since you know the beginning of time and people do not realize that I think that's what I say I say that the the most fascinating paradox of our time is that in order for some organisms living organisms to thrive Others have to be sacrificed, whether that is the intention or not. And no one is exempt from causing harm, you know, to causing a loss of life of the four-legged, of the microorganisms that live in the soil and of other cultures. No one is exempt from that. And I think that if people are, if people would like to practice a way where they are not eating animals, then I think I support that. I support any any endeavor for one to do what they need to do to make themselves feel whole and well. And even if that means not contributing in, you know, eating animals in in some way, shape or form, you know, I support everyone's ideological purpose, spiritual ideological purpose of, of acquiring good health, you know, but it's also, it's also should be understood that hunting is the most ethical and sustainable way to acquire protein, which protein is a very important macronutrient for, for, for health, wellness, longevity, it's the building blocks. And sure, you can get it from plants. You just have to eat more of it. <laughs> yeah. We can consume, you know, four ounces of any sorts of, of any sort of meat, uh, hopefully sustainably sourced, you know, four ounces of meat there and get a very low caloric intake and get high quality protein, all of the amino acids. And so we don't have to we don't have to eat as much, you know, and to, to, to receive that. And so if I was growing up hunting and that's one of the main food ways, indigenous food ways that our family was still able to maintain was, was hunting. And then later on, we started to revitalize within our family, the foraging of seasonal foods, plants on the land, and then the planting of seeds. My great, my great grandparents were the last to still plant some of the original seeds that our people have planted since pre-colonial times, which is a variety of corn, beans, melon, squash, and so there's those various food ways there, modalities to acquire food is that to forage, to grow food, and to hunt. That's the one that a lot of our people have always done all across the continent, all across the world. Human beings across the world acquired their food in that way. And then the fourth part is that human beings from across the world had had spiritual practices associated with, with acquiring those foods, the, the giving of thanks of, of life mm. that was sacrificed to feed them. And, and to give thanks, you know, that it's going to nourish their body. And in our way, we don't see just four-leggeds, the sentient beings is just having eyes, nose, and four-leggeds and finned and winged. We see them also as the plants. It's all of our plants that we that we put in the ground, the seeds, and who we foster, we foster them like children. And when you go also to harvest and forage foods on the land seasonally, that you are also giving thanks to that plant and you are you are also apologizing that you're taking a piece of it off and that you're cutting a piece of it off to consume it. But as you do that, it's going for a good reason and to nourish me and the family, to nourish us. And that's the relationship we have between foraging the plants. Even when you take the squash off of the vine, you're supposed to do it in a good way. And then you're cutting, you're cutting it 
you're cutting its skin off, you're filleting it, you're cutting it open, you're taking its organs out. So in our way, we see it all is is, is the same. There's no there's no difference. There's no difference between taking life of the four-legged or taking life of the, the greened and vined and leafed. They're the same for us because all life in a sense is is comes in different forms. So for me, you know, to hunt is just really to play that role. And I think that there's in my when I view out in, in, in the world, I see that there's just there's a lack of diversity in acquiring foods that everyone is really just set on just planting. There's some that are just set on foraging. There are some that are just set on hunting, fishing and trapping. And, and every culture is different. Some of them didn't forage. Some of them didn't, you know, plant food. But I think a lot of it, you know, it was that way. So I encourage everyone to see your, to see hunting is a part of that and not see it as an isolated thing that it's 2022. And why are people still killing animals and eating them? I think that, you know, those are really short-sighted arguments that obviously we can't get into right here, but very short-sighted and, and very misunderstood and misunderstood. But for us, it's, it's, we have a relationship with, with the nations that we hunt and they're in our creation stories all across native country, all across the, the world. People have in their creation stories, their stories of Genesis, how they came to hunt those animals there. And I think, again, it's a, it's a certainly a, a paradigm shift in as far as our thought process when in order for someone to understand this concept of, okay, we see as native people, we see all the four-legged is, is extended relatives. Then we hunt them. Someone says, well, why would you hunt your relative? You know, and there's, there's this really, you know, shift in thinking that has to happen, but I don't expect people who weren't raised within the context and cultural values of my people to understand that. And I'm okay with not everybody understanding that. I think we need diversity in the world. I think we need people who only eat plants and we, and people who only eat animals and people who eat both. There's there, yeah. there, there should be a respect for all these various modalities on how we acquire food and to leave it at that, you know? Yeah. I think, you know, hunting gets a bad rap because of trophy hunting. So I just hope that folks recognize that there's so many different ways of doing these things. And, yeah. you know, one could argue that corporate agriculture displaces animal life and biodiversity, yeah. corporate agriculture that feeds vegan diets, mm -hmm. you know, to, to the same degree that, you know, that a life might be harmed by somebody going out and, mm -hmm. and doing a hunt. And one thing that I would love to share about Thosh is, you know, there's times just the other week, he came home from a javelina hunt and he said, you know, I was right there. I almost had the shot, but he, I wasn't certain that it was going to be an ethical kill because he was mm -hmm. kind of behind a bush. And so he didn't do it. He didn't take the shot. He, he is very, very committed to ethically hunting. And there was one time where we had this little ant infestation and our daughters, uh, they were crawling up our daughter's changing table and I'm all mama bear and I'm like, oh, kill these ants. And, uh, you know, and he comes home and I'm on this tizzy and I'm trying to kill these ants. And he's like, hey, 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 calm down. And he's like, these ants are not doing anything to you. Just chill. And he's like gently like taking this broom and sweeping the ants up and like dusting them outside and, you know, trying to plug the, find where they were coming in the wall. And, you know, it's like, he's really like genuinely walks the walk. He respects life. He respects animal life. And if he's mm -hmm. hunting and he, and he takes a life, he, he takes that very seriously and he honors that. And we eat the whole animal. We use every piece. And ceremony um, is done for it. You know, and that's the indigenous way. It really is very different from this trophy hunting that we see on TV. I do want to talk about it both in terms of the Hopi prophecy about the spider and the web <laughs> and 
how you guys think about it. You know, Chelsea, you mentioned obliquely in the book that you have a plan. <laughs> Not that I expect you to share it, but it's a very complex, I have a very complex, I think we all have very complex relationships with social media. Can you talk about how you guys are thinking about that and what you think is, how you would imagine spreading or engaging with the world without it? I think if there's one thing we can observe in our own lives is that we grew up with none of this social media stuff. <laughs> we, you know, I think we got internet when I was nine. I got Facebook when I was 18. And so I really grew up in this time where I've seen social media and the internet continue to infiltrate and to be an absolutely necessary component of pretty much everyone's life. And we're also now seeing that technology develops exponentially faster. Digital technology develops exponentially faster than pretty much anything else. And so we get really absorbed and we adjust very quickly to everything that's new and coming at us. And the next thing is the metaverse, right? That's, you know, the powers that be hope that we're all wearing these headsets and sort of halfway living in this world. And I think that it's up to any of us who care at all about our health and our wellness and the health of the planet and the health of communities to sort of put the brakes on that and to be really cautious in how we continue to engage and not to just accept every continued infiltration of technology into our lives. And I think it's great that we have technology to connect in different ways, but that we proceed with caution and that we all have a plan in our in our minds and we make agreements with ourselves just as we make agreements with ourselves about the type of food that we think we should be eating or about how often we visit our doctor or how we care for our families we should have agreements with ourselves about how we engage with technology and we should be very clear about the degree to which we find it healthy so monitoring our screen time and not joining every single app that comes out like i'm not on tiktok i was never on snapchat you know instagram is enough for me that kind mm -hmm. of thing and I have a plan, which is that at some point, I want to be completely off of any form of social media and only using technology. You know, hopefully I won't be using a smartphone either at some point. And the reason that I have developed that plan is because I've observed a number of years in that I think my attention span and my memory is worse than it used to be before mm -hmm. I had a phone for everything. So that's basically it. And I don't have an exact timeline on that, but <laughs> that's probably me just putting it off. And we all tell ourselves these stories about, well, I need social media for this. Well, I need my email for that. Well, I have a group. I don't know. I think it's, it's a mix. I think that some of that is a reality and some of that is a box that we put ourselves into. And so I'm just hoping that I can get to a place where I live really without any of that stuff because, and maybe I'm idealizing a little bit here, but I think that in generations past, when people were not on their phones all day, mm -hmm. they were living maybe happier, more present mm -hmm. lives. And I just can't see myself, I, I really don't want to see myself as, a, you know, an aging person when I'm less mobile, getting stuck on my phone and my iPad all day in my house. You know, I want to continue to be more outside and more active and live life to the fullest. You talk about allyship in the, this context. You write, 
We hope that you can now work with us as allies, something we greatly need during a time when the wellness industry is making billions of dollars from spiritual colonialism, all the while remaining oblivious and unhelpful when it comes to the economic hardships, health disparities, and other social ills that indigenous communities continue to face because our ceremonies were outlawed for so long, outlawed until 1978, as I learned from you, which is insane. Okay, so can you, as how can people serve besides not culturally appropriating, learning, exchanging, learning from? Are there specific organizations that you talk a little bit more about making donations to organizations and nonprofits that particularly are helping younger people reconnect? But is there anything in particular that you really want to see people do? You know, I say donations and we make that suggestion because I think it's easy for people. I I think that that's a pretty straightforward way of contributing. And of course, there's dozens and dozens of incredible native-led nonprofits and organizations that are doing great work in Indian country. We work with one specifically called the Native Wellness Institute, a nonprofit based in Gresham, Oregon, that is truly has been changing lives for decades and integrating wellness teachings into Native communities and specifically doing a lot of really amazing youth work and work with, you know, foster children and, you know, mothers who need assistance and just they have so many, you know, honoring elders and honoring veterans and so many important initiatives that the Native Wellness Institute takes the lead on. So that is one that I would specifically recommend, but also, you know, get to know the tribes, the tribal nations and organizations in your area, because there are urban Indian organizations, there are reservations that have lots of initiatives within. And so find out and sort of get to know the tribal nation that is near your area. And if you can contribute in some way, I think that that's always welcome. I've been thinking a lot about my conversation with Thosh and Chelsea, and specifically about Thosh's gentle correction at the beginning, that we might think of wellness as a new mainstream cultural idea and massive industry, but, well, it wasn't invented by white people. And we know this well, obviously. It's seen primarily as an aggregation of other cultures, practices, and systems of healing, many of which are really, really beautiful. And as we're learning too, with the way that we steward the Earth's resources or where we recognize how we should steward the Earth's resources, many of these concepts are completely and fully indigenous. And as they articulate throughout the book, wellness is the bedrock, particularly in its expression as a form of balance. It's the bedrock of indigenous cultures and it is ancient. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. I also just found it really moving. I, being from Montana, where the indigenous population is about 10%, it was very present in my life. And as mentioned, I would loved going to powwows and shopping at trading posts and I have, over the years, bought so many things. And it's funny now, I mean, my house is full of Pendleton and I identify so deeply with that culture, even though I recognize myself as a big outsider to it. 
part just because I think it is a culture. It's this living, beautiful community. And so few of us have that. You probably, if you follow me on Instagram, understand I'm trying to understand my own relationship to Judaism, in part because I just, I want to belong to a community. And so I think that white Westerners are so drawn and unfortunately tend to appropriate indigenous culture because it can feel like we don't have a culture of our own. I don't know if this feels resonant and true for anyone else, but as an outsider looking in, I was just enamored and jealous and really wanted to dance the powwow. I also wanted to leave you with the indigenous worldview on parenting, which we didn't get to in our conversation, but there are four tenets that they outline. One, adults can learn from children. Two, every child belongs to every adult. Three, no violence or yelling. And then they elaborate, in native communities, loudness in general tends to be viewed as obnoxious or out of place. So you can imagine that the thought of yelling at children has always been looked down upon. And the notion of violence against children, even a spanking, is unthinkable. In pre-colonial times, a person would have been considered less mature than a child if they could not control their temper in response to a child's tantrum or misbehavior. There was less weight on the child to act in line, and instead more expectation on the adult to demonstrate patience and self-control. And the fourth is that adult social lives need not exclude children. Anyway, it's a really beautiful book. It's given me a lot to think about, as did our conversation. Thanks, as always, for listening. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends who you think might like the show because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community.
Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students.